everybody, and welcome to this, the final before the election episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. And look, I know you might be in rough shape right now, but the fact is we made it. Nailed it. We got this far. I do not know what's going to happen on election day and the weeks that follow, but you know what? The purpose of our podcast was always to provide survival strategies for feminists who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do in the inevitable shit show that we knew 2020 would be uh, while they still worried that they weren't doing enough. Right. Like we we helped. And deep down under that was really just like you and I, Amelia, needed to get through it. And making a podcast that would help other people is what would help us to get through. So what we're going to do in today's episode, both of us in our classes do the one important thing exercise, which is simply you ask students to tell you what's one important thing you learned from this, from this chapter, from this episode, from this class, from this series of podcast episodes. And we asked listeners to email us or comment on social media about one important thing they learned and comment they did. Great. We got um, close to 100 responses. Great. Which I have categorized. <laughs> sure. And you have not seen them because you have a job in COVID. Yeah. And so I took responsibility for doing the, the sorting of the information. So you don't know what people said. No. And I, it having done this part, I feel like this is a really good idea, a really good way to end this season. And I want to make it clear that Amelia and I have talked about it and we're going to do something else. We do not know what. Nope. What precisely we do is going to depend very much on what happens on Tuesday. And December 3rd and January 3rd. And January 20th. Yeah. You betcha. All the things that can happen in what the Atlantic called the interregnum between the election and the inauguration. We're not going to talk about that, though. <laughs> We're only going to talk about... Have we disclosed to people our Biden relationship? I don't remember if we have. Well, this feels like a good moment to mention... That Amelia and I, being born and raised in Delaware, had Dr. Jill Biden as our 10th grade English teacher, because Delaware is a very small state. Yeah, Delaware's very small. Most Delawareans live in northern Delaware, right. specifically Wilmington and its suburbs. And we grew up in a suburb of Wilmington. And uh, the Bidens lived in a different suburb of Wilmington. And uh, there that is. This is not official, but you can think of Delaware as being divided by I-95. We grew up in the part north of the 20-minute drive between New Jersey and Maryland. That is most people's experience of Delaware. Of Delaware, yeah. Okay. Are you ready for some things people learned? What important things? So, you will not be surprised that the first theme that I'm sharing with you, I mean, take a guess. Separate instruction from the stressor. That is, in fact, the second thing. Ah, what do you suppose the first thing is? Well, I suppose the first thing was separating the stress from the stressor. The second thing. What's the second thing? Uh, um, it's the thing that goes with it. Completing the stress response cycle. Yeah. I learned to complete the stress response cycle taco emoji. <laughs> okay. My main takeaway was the importance of completing the stress response cycle and the ways this can be achieved. Is I've a taco emoji a euphemism for something or is I, it just fun? I, I think it was just fun. Okay. I learned to complete the stress response cycle heart emoji. For me, it's one of the very first things, separating the stress from the stressor, and that you deal with stress on a body level. I thought that was such a clear way of putting it. Mm -hmm. You deal with the stressors out in the world. You deal with 
uh, your stress on a body level. Help me wrap words around why my dance practice is so important to me being okay. Right? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You deal with stress on a body level. Two things, not one. A lot of people had more than one thing, but I tried. I did my best. One, completing the stress response cycle helps us not store it in our bodies. And two, and I thought it was interesting that these were connected, connection is a biological drive that can be unfulfilled or oversatiated just like hunger. Oh, yeah. Because connection is such an important one of the strategies for completing the stress response cycle. And we don't actually say in the book, there's such a thing as too much connection. It can generate stress. The way, like, stuffing your face with Halloween candy can cause too much. <laughs> like, there's such a thing as too much. Yeah. And then we got this lovely story that I'm going to change some details in for the protection of, like, personal information. So this is a person who has a degree in creative writing and then stopped for a long time and then started dabbling again this year. In writing? Yeah. It's been yeah. weird to pick up something like that back up. I never understood why I had stopped writing and I listened to the podcast and suddenly remembered, God, doesn't this just happen? I suddenly remembered one of my fiction professors telling me I needed to write something happy. Ugh. I think that was coming from good intentions. I, that's the forgiveness that we offer people. But at 20 years old, I had no tools to process the emotional neglect I had grown up other than with writing. It was so deeply sad all the time. And then in this past year, writing... This person now realizes there's been an unconscious belief that it needs to be light because yeah. the fiction I like, and this is true for me personally also, but for this person, the fiction I like has resolutions. The main characters get their happy ever after. The injustice gets righted, but I was skipping the tunnel. Oh, Olive. Are you That's skipping correct, the tunnel? Olive. Are you in the tunnel? Good job, Olive. I was skipping the tunnel and I didn't even see it. Now I feel like I have permission to let it get as sad and deep and dark as it needs to on the way to the light. Nice. Yes! Creative self-expression does actually require you to go through the tunnel so that you can get to the light. The best, my favorite romance novels are the ones that get like super dark in the middle and then turn into the super, you like really earn the happy ending. Yeah. Oh, uh, this person also says, also, thank you, therapy and EMDR. Yeah. Just to make it clear, podcast is not therapy. No. And a lot of people did say something like, therapy also. Also therapy. I started therapy because of your podcast. I'm a therapist. I send my clients to your podcast. Yeah. There was a lot of that. Yeah, I talk about therapy a lot in my class, too. I talk about therapy a lot on the podcast. I talk yeah. about the podcast a lot in therapy. <laughs> I mentioned to my students, like, when I'm talking about, here's things that are true about stress, blah, 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 and also therapy. Yeah. Because, you know. And I said what the, what the second theme was. So first theme, completing the cycle, mm -hmm. which requires going through the tunnel, which is a very body-related process. Mm -hmm. Theme number two, I learned that removing the stressor does not automatically complete the cycle. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like traffic. Traffic is my go-to example. When you get out of traffic, when you make your way home, you don't suddenly feel awesome. You still feel shitty when you walk in the door and you take it out on the nearest mammal. Yeah. Separating dealing with the stress from dealing with the stressor was so clarifying. Stress versus stressor was mind-opening for me. The concept from your podcast that has done me the most good is that dealing with stress is separate from dealing with the stressor. That really changed my life. The thing I've quoted most is, and this is another one where I love that they're related, don't bring facts to a feelings fight. Mm -hmm. 
That's a quote from our Thanksgiving episode of yeah. how to deal with family members you don't disagree with. And what I love about these two being connected is that don't bring facts to a feelings fight is basically the same thing as don't try to deal with a stressor in order to deal with your stress. Right. Right? Don't uh-huh. bring your like intellectual whatever to the fact that your body is in a state of right intense stress. Yeah. I love that. And th- that's not original to us. I'm sure somebody said that and you quoted it. Do you want do you want to guess what the next uh No. No, you don't. <laughs> Sorry. It's I have COVID brain and I ruined my tea and Oh just... <laughs> no. How did you ruin your tea? I put turmeric in it thinking it would be good and I made it really bad. That sounds really disgusting. It's I thought it would be good. It's not good. It Look, turmeric delicious. makes some things taste better, but this particular tea Tea is not one of those. It's my favorite tea and I thought Turmeric makes other things better. Maybe it'll make this better. It does not. And I'm a little sad. Okay. So there's something (laughs) that you frequently say is like the thing you learned in the process of writing the book. And it's something that I have been teaching a long time. Yeah, that's that's a lot of things. So (laughs) rest. And especially that there's not a relationship between how rested you feel and how rested you are. Oh, yeah. So the episode on rest, my whole time in college, tell me if this sounds familiar, I was convinced that naps didn't make me feel better when I was really sleep deprived. This is a reference to the fact that sometimes napping can make you feel worse because you pay off some of your sleep debt. And when you pay off some of your sleep debt, your stress response goes down. And so now you can feel how sleep deprived you always were. Yeah, that was that was a very important thing that I learned in the course of writing the book. And uh, it's a thing I tell my students all the time. Yeah, it was not when we did chapter seven, it did not come up in any students. One important things. I was so surprised. I thought for sure. Hmm. No, but I what did come up in their one important things in that episode? Um, The fact that sleep is a need, not a weakness, not a moral failing, that kind of thing. Well, that's good. The fact that there are other kinds of rest besides sleep. The fact that active rest is a real valid thing. So basically everything else in the chapter. Yeah, basically everything else in the chapter. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, that's that's sort of every section. Okay, I've learned a lot and shared a lot, but the thing that has changed my life the most is learning that humans generally aren't very good at knowing if we're asleep or not. That is also true. This uh, is a reference to an experiment that sleep researchers do where they have you, you know, you go to sleep in the sleep lab with the uh, equipment connected to your heart and your palms and your scalp and stuff. And they watch your brain waves. And when they see that you have fallen into sleep, they're looking at it empirically, explicitly, you are asleep. They do a voiceover on the monitor and say, "Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, just we forgot to do one thing. And what people say is not, hey, I had just fallen asleep. What they say is, hey, I was about to fall asleep. So you may be getting more sleep than you are aware of. Yeah. The sleep episode has resulted in some nice early morning naps with the dog. Who says I can't go back to sleep after feeding him? He wants it too. Mm -hmm. And listening is a big takeaway. Listening to the body, listening to the madwoman, listening to what dreams have to say. Hmm. Turning toward. That was uh, the only mention of the dream episode. Hmm. There were a variety. There were. We'll get to a collection of responses that were like, this is the only person who mentioned this thing. And I think it's important that we talk about that somebody mentioned it. By listening to your podcast, I learned it's okay to rest, and it's important for your health. The analogy about lifting weights was very helpful for me. I sometimes feel guilty about resting. Yeah. Oh, boy. I had had several students who connected the the idea that sleep is good for your brain and the connection to the way that rest is necessary for 
athletic activity. I have a bunch of like team captains and stuff in the honors class. Of course, of course. Yeah. Um, and they, they like for them connected listening, connected knowing was mm-hmm. a big deal for like relating to their teams. But in the sleep chapter, a lot of them brought into it their athletic stuff they do. Yeah. And coaches are really catching on to this and prioritizing sleep because they recognize that it has a relationship with performance. Yeah, it's I actually necessary. I actually had a student who um, told a story about the fact that when she was in high school, she played up like a sport every season. She just played constantly. And then like her junior year, maybe in high school, she injured her ankle and she had to take a season off. And she was like really mad that she had to just she couldn't do anything for months and months. And then when she went back, her ankle was so much better and it was totally worth having had that rest because she came back stronger than she would have been if she had, you know, played through. Tried to work through it. Yeah. I love that. I was like, nailed it. We just did uh, a Q&A with a group of women leaders. And one person explicitly asked, look, sometimes I have to choose between exercise and sleep. Which should I choose? Oh, yeah. And the answer is unambiguously sleep because the exercise unambiguously sleep doesn't help you if you're not getting the sleep during which your brain learns motor patterns and your muscles and bones and cardiovascular system heal from the intentional damage that you do so that your body can grow. The growing happens during the sleep. Also, if you don't get exercise, there's no threat to anyone else. But if you don't get sleep, you could kill someone if you get behind the wheel. Yeah. You're a danger to others if you are sleep deprived. So, yeah. yeah. Unambiguously, sleep or exercise? Sleep. Hmm, sleep. Yeah. Yes. And I know Kamala Harris has said that, like, she wakes up early and gets the exercise no matter how little sleep she's gotten. No, and she's I want to, like, like, we need you so much. Girl, no. <laughs> Please. Please get the sleep. Please sleep. Instead of exercising. And I know that there's this like moral feeling of superiority that exercise is better because it's inherently active and therefore superior, you know. And sleep is kind of lazy. It's lazy and therefore it, and it's just for you. Whereas exercise might like help make you thinner, which would help make you pretty, which serves your human giver syndrome. <sighs> that was a half growl, half cough. Sorry about that. <laughs> so. And then the last sleep-related one has to do with all the ways you don't have to fight yourself. Different sleep-wake cycles are not a problem to be fought. My need for rest is not a problem to be fought. <laughs> and then she goes on, the madwoman in my skull attic is not a problem to be fought. Yeah. I should turn towards my own damn self with kindness and compassion. Yeah. Yes. Fucking kindness and compassion. I know. My needs are not something to be fought. My internal experience is not something to be fought. Yeah, I love that. That's really like, good. L- linking thematically all these really different ideas. From yeah. I really like when, when the one important thing students come back with and they say something with more precision and pithiness in fewer words than we did. So, yeah, kind of nailed it. So what I have next is a collection of things that only one person said. And then I also want to say the thing that nobody said that I kind of wish somebody had said. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here we have the monitor episode. It was key to shifting me back into action on my academic work. I share it with clients all the time. Great. Yes. And then just one word. Foop. <laughs> yeah. Referring to the foop episode, yeah. which is the, the sort of bananas feeling of oscillating between uh, frustrated rage and helpless despair. Yeah. And so there was one that was explicitly about connection. There was the one comment about connection before about how you can have too much of it. And then I'm going to just read this comment because it brings up all the complex feelings that 
there are to have about this stuff. Connection. My own perceived greatest connection strength is feeling true joy when I connect with others. I sincerely want to hear their stories and be in the details of their lives. I feel so enlarged and enriched when they share freely and open the little things as well as the big, the joys along with the frustrations. This is feeling connected. It brings me joy. My own perceived greatest weakness in connection is not knowing when or how to seek and ask for connection with people closest to me without eliciting feelings of guilt anger, frustration at me for needing or wanting more, right? This is human giver syndrome. We don't mm -hmm. want to inconvenience anyone mm -hmm. by fulfilling or something larger and having our basic needs met. When my take is empty, I reach out for connection, which is exactly the advice we give in the book, but it is not perceived in a positive or productive way all the time. How do I ask for more or different affection without making the other person feel deficient in the way they have so freely given with me? How do I encourage deep sharing verbally without bringing out old hurts? How do I foster safety and love and acceptance when often I am hurting and feeling unloved myself? Those, those are the questions. Yeah. That you, that we don't answer. We're not going to try to answer them here. No. But I feel like hearing them spoken out loud is going to help a lot of people be like, yes. Yeah. And of course, step one is heal your shit. Yeah. So that was... That was the one thing that I wish. So, so let's go to that part. I wish someone had said that healing your shit is a key way to avoid taking your shit out on other people, yeah. especially people who are disadvantaged compared to you. Yeah. Healing your shit is social justice action. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's important that we recognize that it is that because as givers, as people who feel a moral obligation to give to other people, it offers us a serious motivation for healing our own shit because it can so often feel like it's selfish yeah. to focus on healing our own personal shit. No, it is absolutely necessary you do that. Otherwise, you're going to take the damage that lives inside you and do it to somebody else. Yeah. I think the other issue that people object to healing your shit as social justice action is that it feels so small scale. Yeah. But, I mean, it's not because, I mean, ask the people around you how it affects them when you're, you know, feeling good versus when you're feeling crappy. It affects them. So if it affects you, it affects the people around you. It affects the people around them. When you change you, you change the world. The comment that com comes closest to saying this is um, the idea that taking care of myself is an act of resistance against the broken system. Yeah. It was exactly what I needed to hear. Can't spell resist without rest. And also we help, we help this person identify there's something larger. Hey, hey. Which is one of the things I feel like we are not great at because both of us have a really clear relationship with our something larger and have had for a while. Yeah. You especially. This is like the one thing where you would be better at teaching it because it didn't come as naturally to you. Yeah. So like you at least had to try. On that note, I'm not sure how to compose a single comment about it, but episode 45, clap emoji, heart emoji. I have no idea what 45 was. Emily's epiphany. Oh, do you have any recollection at all of what my epiphany was? Yeah, it was that doing the stuff that was good for you was the stuff that's good for the world. The stuff that you would do anyway is the stuff you should be doing, like buying local and stuff like that. Yeah. In case of autocracy, what should I do? My panic self asked all summer. Right. And my epiphany was I do exactly what I would do in case democracy manages to save democracy. Yeah. Yeah. 
like they're all the right they're all my they're my something larger they are the right thing for me regardless it just changes the stakes yeah it changes the context in which I make those decisions this is a thing I've discovered through teaching the book also is that a lot of the things that we use to maintain wellness are the same tools we use in times of trauma or damage to recover and to grow beyond what we were before. Yeah. And we're going to get to the ones that are about trauma. Yeah. One important thing, the tall tree fairness test. Mm -hmm. And we learned from your students that uh, some of them identified that as being extremely important. Like their most important thing from chapter four was the tall tree fairness test as a way to conceptualize privilege. Yeah. And of, yeah. Of understanding that it's not your fault. It's not privilege is not a blame. It's just a matter of believing people when they tell you who they are. Right. Another one-off, attachment. Attachment style can change. And turning toward your inner child with compassion, not admonishment, is key. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that helped somebody. That's one of our most recent episodes. And uh, I have been teaching attachment for a long time. People invite me specifically to come and talk about just attachment. Mm-hmm. So... It's exciting to hear that somebody was like, yay, attachment style can change. And the way you do that is be being kind to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> the way you do everything is by being kind to yourself. Yeah. It, it is, though. That is that is convenient, though, because there's one thing that you do and it's going to help on a lot of different fronts. Yeah. When you're like, well, what do I do to help this thing? Like, there's be kind to yourself. There's one answer that will get you on the right road. Yeah. You turn toward it. Kindness. Compassion. Okay. Uh, one last one-off, and that is I cried listening to the sex episode. Oh. You guys were talking about how it usually isn't actually a problem with a woman's libido, but rather the sex that is being offered. Yeah. Uh, that We had our first guest, Peggy Kleinplatz, who is a sex therapist and researcher. She treats couples with a low desire, no desire, low frequency, no frequency, and she, people come in and are like, I have no desire for sex. Yeah. And she says, well, tell me more about this sex you don't want. Yeah. <laughs> and then they describe the sex and she says, well, I, I rather like sex, but I would not want that either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she asks couples to consider what kind of sex is worth wanting. So uh, this person goes on to say, I felt liberated for the first time from the confusing hellscape that was my relationship with my own sexuality for the past year. I cannot overemphasize the positive impact all your episodes have on my psyche, but especially that episode on good sex. And also fat does not mean unhealthy and thin does not mean healthy. Great. Which we will get to. There's a stack of those. The thing that I took most from the, um, the sex episode was the parallel between sex and conducting, where there's just this school of thought where... If you're just not naturally gifted at it, then you'll never know and you can't be taught. And it's some big, huge, complicated thing that you have to you have to just instantly know. Otherwise, you'll never know. If you have to ask, you'll never know. Ew, that's just wrong. Yeah. A lot of people have that attitude about sex, partly because the script, the cultural script of being a sexually good person yeah. involves already knowing, not having to ask having a lot of skill, whatever that even means, yeah. <laughs> yeah, without ever having to practice. Right, exactly. And it, that's all nonsense. Yeah, it's nonsense. Okay, since that one ended on uh, body image stuff, I have, I have a big old stack on uh, the bikini industrial complex. Oh, good. I have learned to view the beauty and diet industries and their messages through a critical eye, which has been a powerful shift 
and to approach myself with some motherfucking compassion. Yeah. Which can be hard, but I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yes. Yeah. It's not easy. Just because it's it's straightforward and universal answer doesn't mean it's easy. Okay. Personally, transformative for me has been the episodes on dieting and BMI, mm. unlearning much about diet culture. Mm -hmm. uh, we also talk about the feelings tunnel a lot, and I have forwarded the Mad Woman episode to people. Oh, I can't just pick one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the, I put this one in the BMI stack because it was the first one. Okay. One of the things that shocked me most to learn was the BMI chart is pretty much diet industry propaganda. Not pretty much, literally. Literally propaganda. Yeah. Literally propaganda. I knew it wasn't indicative of health for lots of people, but I didn't realize just how messed up it was. Oh, yeah. The whole bikini industrial complex fascinated me. Yeah. Uh, looking like a model is not healthy to every body type. This year, I tried to reach redacted body goal. So as a side note for people, when you talk about these things, don't talk about specific goals. Don't talk about numbers. Don't talk about calories, weight, body fat percentages. Don't use numbers when you talk about this stuff because they can be really triggering. To reach a redacted goal using redacted diet, again, don't talk about rules. And I reached it, this person says. And I want to pause and say I know how good it feels <laughs> to reach that goal. Not just like you work really hard toward a goal and you achieve it, like that's inherently rewarding. Mm -hmm. But then everybody compliments you on it. Yeah. No matter what's happening, they're like, you look great. Wow, yeah. what did you do? How did you do it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But this person goes on to write, I started to notice that when I stood up, sometimes my vision faded. Yeah. Or I would get very woozy. Yeah. Yeah, same thing happened to me, actually, personally. Mm -hmm. Okay, this person writes, I realized the thing I thought I wanted was hurting me. Mm -hmm. And I have adjusted my mental image of myself. Yeah. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Okay. You can't tell anything about a person's state of health by their appearance. That's the thing I said many times in my lecture about Chapter 5. You can't tell anything about a person's health by the way they look. You can't tell anything about a person's health by the way they look. There you go. Not yours, not anybody else's. Okay. Taking the next step from the bikini industrial complex was the theme of listening to your body. Mm -hmm. A lot of people said this. Listening to your body was a big one for me. No way I could name all the things. Uh, praise or I don't know if it's high five emoji. Yeah. That feelings are felt in your body and that's supposed to happen. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That was new for me, too, pretty recently. My mind-body connection experience is more like Amelia's. So none. <laughs> one of the things I, I want to say, one of the things I learned in the process of reading these is no one's experience is more like Emily's. <laughs> no one was like, I really related to Emily. Emily's story really resonated for me. And a bunch of people were like, Amelia's story really resonated with me. I really related to Amelia. That might be sort of like the nature of our content draws That's people I'm who the have struggled. That's because I'm the fucked up broken one who had to learn all the things. It's not that I haven't struggled with it. It's just that I have more interoception. And I am placed in our narrative as the fucked up broken one who has to learn things. And the whole point of being in the audience of the show is that you are going to hopefully learn something. So, yeah. Right. We... We established you as the main character, as the heroine, and I am the flawed mentor. Exactly, yeah. Which is why it does flip. And the literal story is that it flips. Yeah. That I help you a million years ago when you're in grad school, and while we're writing the book, and I was doing my TED Talk and stuff, you were like, 
do the shit, do the thing, do the thing you said you were going to do because you're getting mean and unpleasant <laughs> to be around. So go to your fucking thing. I remember all that shit you taught me. Now you have to do that. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. My mind-body connection is more like Amelia's carrying years of difficulty, mental health issues, and body manipulations starting in adolescence that made attempts at a belly breath in yoga make the little green women in my gut start climbing the walls. Mm -hmm. Right? Can you Very evocative, yeah. Yep. yeah. Another big takeaway has been the freeze response is morally neutral. Yeah. And a completely valid survival mechanism that you don't choose. So this person is working through judgment. Yeah. Because their body was taking care of them. Yeah. By getting, and then they got stuck in the middle. Yeah. Which brings us to the trauma ones. And I'm not going to say anything explicit about anybody's story. I'm just going to say, for example, one important thing, the difference between completing a stress cycle and entering a trauma resolution session mm. through the tunnel versus down to the bottom of the ocean. And this is our, is it burnout or is it trauma? Yeah. And we offer a different model for thinking about the way you heal from trauma yeah. versus just healing from stress. For, for stress, you go through the tunnel. Feelings are tunnels. You have to go through it to get to the light at the end. Yeah. But there is a magical, mystical thing that happens during trauma where you have to surrender and soften yeah. into the experience to allow yourself you don't push yourself through you allow yourself to move through yeah and it's scary as fuck and that is why it's so important to have somebody with you like a therapist yeah. who can stay calm and be like yeah you're in the middle of the ocean yeah. and it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere but i'm beside you to let you know you're safe and you can soften further and the more you allow it the closer you'll get to the bottom of it and poof, you'll arrive on the beach with a martini in your hand yeah so one important thing for me, here's another one, turn toward it with kindness and compassion, <sighs> said, with the, said with some annoyance and resignation, <laughs> while being aware that it is usually the most difficult thing to do, heart emoji, smile emoji. Hmm. Also, the image of surrendering to the darkness caused through trauma by sinking to the bottom of the ocean and trusting that you'll be swept up on the shore afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a way, the answer, uh, I'm... I'm putting it together now that really the answer that we're giving people is trust your body, mm -hmm. which is, again, the hardest thing to do when you're a trauma survivor. Mm -hmm. I'm working with a psychologist who specializes in trauma, and I would never have known to look for her without burnout and this podcast. Oh, yay. Her sleep is better. Her brain is calmer. And her life has changed for the better. And then we come to a messy stack, but they are broadly the theme of the mad woman. I got to know my mad woman, exclamation mark. I think the information on the abyss and that culture's expectations are bullshit has really stuck with me in addition to the mad women and separating the stress from the stressor. So uh, I'm putting the abyss and the mad woman together because they do go together. The abyss is where the mad woman lives. Yeah. The mouse in the infinity pools. This is, this is the forced swim test. Changed my life. Mm. It helped me rethink everything about my career and creative life. That's learned helplessness. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. So that's learned helplessness. And yeah, that should change people's lives. Yeah. Remember that time when I had to move out of my house because we sold it or we rented it and we were trying to buy a new house, but like it was a mess and we couldn't move into it. So I was living in your house for six weeks. Remember that? Yeah. And it was, I do remember your that house with your like two dogs 12, and your cat. Yeah. It was like me and you, both our husbands, four dogs averaging 60 pounds each and uh, f three cats 
and in your 1200 square foot house and like I needed to get the fuck out of there and like I when there was one day when I was just like in bed like just couldn't get out of bed because I was just all you know I had been trying to get out of this house for weeks. You were trapped. And the lawyers wouldn't let me. I was literally trapped in your house, which, like, you're very nice. The house is great. But, like, I needed to get out. That was what I was expecting. Yeah. That was what was supposed to be. And uh, and so you texted me, like, this pile of candy or something that needed to be, like, sorted or put into little baggies for your orientation session you were doing. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, come do a thing. I'm going to drag you across like the little puppies in the experiment. You drag them across and you show them that their body is capable. And I was like, you can t- capable of doing a thing. And I was like, I'm just not. And your no was a perfect example of the generalization that we do. If we become helpless in one situation, our body generalizes and perceives us as being uh, helpless in other situations, too. Yeah. So I was like, come help me stuff these baggies for my orientation group. And you were like, I'm not able to do a thing. No. <laughs> yeah. I think you never came. I never came. Right? I never did. Yeah, you just didn't I do it. I literally yeah. stayed in bed that whole day. You know, you got to do what you got to do. And in the end, the lawyers let us move into the house before we actually officially bought it. Because we were like, we need someplace to go. And they were like, all right, you can move in before we actually sign the papers. So there's a happy ending to the story is what I'm saying. Yeah. Happy ending to the story. You uh, have lived in that house for years now. Yeah. And it's and you've redone the kitchen and the bathrooms. Yeah. All right. The abyss episode is so important. The image of all of us standing together, using our buckets to move the shore has really stuck with me. I see it as I write postcards to voters. Exactly. Or help just one person through my role as a breastfeeding support volunteer. Right? One person at a time. Mm-hmm. Helping. I also want to say, you give great recommendations, which is an opportunity for us to give more shout outs to the Underbelly Yoga. Oh, yeah. Underbelly Yoga. Uh, and this person's now a subscriber. And the Nat Ministry oh, yeah. is the best thing on Instagram. Yeah. And on Twitter. Yeah. That's the best thing on the internet. I want to add that the Nat Ministry has added a hotline. And every Tuesday, they change the message to a different rest-facilitating, rest-encouraging message. So if you follow the Nat Ministry on Instagram or Twitter, you will find that hotline, and you can call it every Tuesday, and it will make your life better. More recommendations. Okay. One important thing I learned is that there is nothing inherently wrong with me just because my life doesn't match up with what the media says it should be. Mm -hmm. Treating myself with kindness and fucking compassion And giving up on the idea of not deserving it has been one step in healing. And though it's a difficult step, I feel much, much better as a person. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also, I learned that Schitt's Creek is great at entertainment. (laughs) Heck yeah. And Brandon Sanderson's stories are amazing. They, They really are. Thank you for helping make 2020 tolerable. That is exactly what we were trying to do. Yeah. Um, there's a new Brandon Sanderson book being released in two weeks. Why did he time it to be after the election? Yeah. I, uh, that was unnecessary. Yeah. Well, it's okay, though, because he's releasing week by week a chapter for like two months, three months in advance. So so he's been like helping a little. Yeah, he's been. But also making people slightly crazy. It's more helpful than hurtful, I think. Okay. But that comment brings us to the next stack. We are at the second to last stack of things people said were the most important thing they learned. Ready? Mm-hmm. Turning toward myself with kindness and compassion. Mm-hmm. Turning toward myself and others with kindness and compassion. Mm-hmm. 
Self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Turning toward ourselves and others with kindness and compassion is always the right answer. Ugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> turn towards yourself with kindness and compassion. Mm. It's turn towards the problems with kindness and compassion. Mm. Turn towards it. Just it. It. With kindness and motherfucking compassion. Whatever the fuck it is. I mean, if we wanted to sum up the entire podcast, Mm -hmm. like what is our motto? Turn towards it with kindness and motherfucking compassion. This is what I mean when it's so nice when a student comes back and like tells you what you're teaching them and they sum it up in, in fewer words than you could. Yeah. And then one thing I remember most is kindness and fucking compassion. That's where it all leads. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's to me. Sometimes I got to find some compassion toward my fellow countrywomen and men for all of our sakes. Yeah. It's, it's getting, it's getting feels in here, but yeah, here is the last stack. My one thing, surround yourself with fellow givers. Mm hmm. My one thing would be human giver syndrome in general. Yeah. It taught me I'm not the only one who feels the way I do. Why I feel the way I do about so many things. How it's not ingrained in women, but as a result of the patriarchy, ingrained, uh, this person saying innate, like there's something biological or inherent to us. And how I can continue to be a good person, but still take care of myself. I don't have to be all the things at once or even any of them. (laughs) And it's so freeing. That's awesome. That was a thing for you, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't have to do, I don't have to follow the rules. I know. When my students were talking about their sleep stuff um, in the predetermined, the pre-reading discussions, the, a lot of them talked about, like, they just listed all the shit they have to do. And as part of my lecture on the thing, like, we go back and we, like, I sum up their discussion. And one of the things that I said was, y'all do a lot. Uh, I know the world is telling you that you need to do these things because capitalism and that you're in college to prepare for getting a job, but... You're not here to be productive. You're here to be you. So, you know, you, you're allowed to choose not to do all that stuff if you don't want to. I've already told them that I won't take it personally if they, like, don't do work for my class and they want to, like, settle for a seed. I'm, I'm not taking that personally. That's a legitimate choice to make. And I. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Oh, I always encourage students to take my class pass fail. Yeah. If they possibly could, if they didn't need to have a letter grade, I urged them to take it pass fail. And they told me that their expectation and what had literally been told to them was that professors find it insulting Yeah. if you take their class pass fail. And I was like, no, I want you to be here to fucking learn. Right. Not to get a grade. Not to get points. Yeah. Yeah. So you have an option. You have a choice. And this is a question that also came up when we were doing that Q&A with the women leaders. They were like, here's the list of all the things that I need to do. And I love all of these things. And I can't imagine letting go of any of these things. Right. And I, did you like my container answer? Yes. Yes. I mean, it's very practical. Like, because you only have so many hours in the day. Right. So, So what I said, first of all, I talked about this slob blogger that I follow. Her website and her podcast are A Slob Comes Clean. So first of all, that's super clever. Mm -hmm. But she's a person who has been messy all her life, who hates housework, and none of the usual advice works for her. None of this, like, take everything out and start from scratch. Instead, what she realized is that everything is a container. A shelf is a container. A bookshelf is a container. You are allowed to have as many books as will fit on this shelf. So start picking books to keep 
that are like your, start with your favorites. Mm -hmm. Put those on the shelf and keep putting books on the shelf until the container is as full as you can manage. And after that, you're done. You And you don't have to feel bad about it. The container made the choice of what doesn't make the cut. And when can, time is the container, you can't just get another bookshelf. Like, you're done. Mm -hmm. And so no matter how much you love the things that don't fit into the, I'm sorry to say, mere 24 hours a day, seven days a week, mm -hmm. those, those are not things that were your favorites. Your gut told you what was your favorite. Mm -hmm. And you put it into your calendar. Yeah. You don't have to actually do everything. In fact, please don't. And what you added to that that was so important was that the things you love need to love you back by not demanding from you more than you're able to give and stay well. Yeah. And also that you'll enjoy the stuff more if you're feeling well when you engage in them. Right. My biggest takeaway, here's another one, has two parts. Aha, a workaround to the like one important <laughs> thing. That was funny. <laughs> one is I am okay as I am. And that all of my feelings about not being okay are directly attributable to the white supremacist, this heteropatriarchal capitalism in its many forms and functions. So it's not my fault that I don't feel okay. And I don't need to have meta emotions about not being okay. Yeah. Along those lines, I have learned that I am also not exclusively responsible for my own care. Yeah. The cure for burnout is all of us taking care of each other. Yeah. That speaks to my soul. Yeah. The important thing that immediately came to mind was that you can't do it alone. Yeah. The cure for burnout isn't me trying harder. It's all of us caring for each other. Yeah. I learned this was a funny one because it's a thing that we do but don't talk about. And I thought it was really smart that the person caught us. I learned that sometimes it helps to hear a thing from a person I consider and all capitalized expert who knows what she's talking about mm -hmm. and who's maybe kind of authentic, not perfect, just authentic. There are a bunch of things I already know in theory, but I still wasn't convinced that they applied to me. Yeah. Emily and Amelia say I need rest, even if <laughs> half of the items on my to-do list are still not ticked. Yeah. Is more convincing than my colleague telling me to go home now because she doesn't know the hundreds of things I've still got to do and how bad that feels. Yeah. And anyways, she's still at the office at 8 p.m. herself. Yeah. So one of the things we conclude in the book is that just telling yourself is not a thing that works. Nope. Telling yourself you're allowed to need rest. Telling yourself you're allowed to rest. You're allowed to ask for help. You're allowed to receive help. We need God, people to tell us that. And so part of our job is just like saying that over and over, telling people yeah. so, so that they can hear a like, you know, capital E expert. Yeah. Be like, no, seriously. Yeah. You need to rest. Yeah, for real though. Yeah. Yep. And then the other thing that's going to convince you is if you actually were like, fine, I'll try it. And you try it and you actually get rest and it feels so different. <laughs> and it feels so much better. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't, I didn't know. even know how much was I missing. didn't even know what rested felt like. Uh, I don't want to live without that anymore. Here's another one. I've learned loads, but that actual self-care is caring for each other is maybe the most important thing that really got to me. Great. Yeah. One of the problems with the sort of like self-care genre is that it assumes that taking care of others is inherently draining and it's not. No. Taking care of others can be enormously can be a form of self-care. Like you energize yourself. You feel better when you help other people. Yeah. But it can't be just that. Right. It can't be just that. Yeah. It also has to be sleep. <laughs> yeah. 
among other things. It has to be and- giving resources and receiving resources because wellness yes. is not a state of being. It's a state of action. <laughs> no one said that either. Well, wellness is not a state of being. It's a state of action. It's the freedom to oscillate through all the cycles of being human. So true. Giving and receiving. Okay. Uh, it's not about self-care, but all of us caring for each other. This is a big one. The fucked up country I come from just banned abortion. I am devastated, heartbroken, and so fucking mad. I cry and yell nonstop, but I am not alone. Protests have already begun all over the country, and I want to be part of them. Stop keeping my mouth shut and join this fucking war. Our government hates us, so caring for each other is our only way out. Yeah. I think the day it was made illegal showed me how much I have discovered, thanks to the podcast. It's about me and community. Caring is resistance. Yes. Thanks to you, I learned that it's okay to need help and ask for help and also help others. The rhetoric of love yourself and stop being a people pleaser confused me a lot. Yeah. That's because it's really confusing. Smiley face emoji. Misinformed. Heart emoji. Well-intentioned, misinformed, unhelpful. I love how you repeat that not self-care is the key, but simply care. All of us caring for each other. Everything from the mad woman or mad man for me to feelings or tunnels, separate the stress from the stressors, lean on, not in, out, or down, to treat it all with kindness and compassion, have become invaluable tools. Having just listened to the attachment episode, I think my one important thing is that it always comes down to kindness and compassion, but definitely said in that voice. Yeah. (laughs) It makes both my wife and I laugh when I say it that way, and it is totally right every time. I notice my feelings or her feelings or my boy's feelings. I try non-judgment, and I give them my kindness and compassion. And during these last hellish nine months, a gradual change has formed. We are kinder to ourselves and to each other, and we have grown during tremendously stressful times. Post-traumatic growth is a real thing that happens. Yeah. And we helped. We offered tools that helped people. And we didn't have to wait for the trauma to be over. We didn't have to wait for the stress to end in order to start feeling better. You can start to heal before the terrible thing goes away. So that even if we are trapped in this hellscape for four more years, God forbid, but if, 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 then we we can make it through that. Oh, God, I don't want to have to, but we can. Yeah, we can. We don't have to. But you have to do both. And that's that's the thing. Yeah. And you turn toward it with kindness and motherfucking compassion. And when you do that, that actually is the change. Yeah. Yep. So that's what our podcast was about. That you self-care is not the answer. It's all of us caring for each other. And we made a podcast that was caring for each other. Look, we did the thing by doing the thing. And at least one person literally noticed. <laughs> but even if they hadn't it doesn't matter because we did the thing by doing the thing yeah we by talking about the thing we did the thing to accomplish the thing and this combination of understanding the thing explaining the thing versus doing the thing has been a part of our narrative around these issues since the beginning the first book i gave you was an explanation of what was happening Mm -hmm. and the second book i gave you was practice yeah, 
Just here. Yeah. Do these exercises. Yeah. You don't need to know why they help. work, but they're they're gonna work. Just do it. Yeah. Just just keep just do it. Keep doing it over and over, and it will work. And you don't ever have to have an insight about it. You don't ever <laughs> have to like tell yourself any stories about it. Yeah. You just need to practice these things and your yeah. body, and it will help your body do what it needs to do. Yeah. And the thing is that that taking that step opens the door to further access to deeper solutions. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to access for deeper solutions. You could just stop with just do the thing. But once you start, it's kind of, it's nice. I mean, it's hard and it takes time. And people, people like having things explained to them. It is so much safer to gain an intellectual understanding of something and go, hmm, I understand that. Yes, Mm, yes. Makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, And then never do anything about it, never change anything. Right. I I knew someone whose boyfriend had a lot of depression and anxiety, and uh, he took one mindfulness class, Uh and he was like, I understand the concept, and never went again. Yeah. Like, you didn't understand the concept if you think you just understanding intellectually was the thing. Yeah. They broke up. Well, I mean, that's why we wrote a book that's full of feels, because understanding the content is, knowing is only half the battle. Knowing is half the battle, but only knowing is only half the battle. You gotta, you gotta do the thing, too. You gotta actually do the thing, yeah. Yeah. Which is hard and time-consuming and unpleasant sometimes, but it actually does feel so much better. And it was because we knew intellectually so much stuff that we could have the foresight to do something in preparation to help us get through what we anticipated to be terrible. Right. And it turned out to be so much more necessary than we ever thought. Yeah. Oh, hey, speaking of doing the thing by doing the thing, I I wrote a gratitude song for Brene Brown because... Because expressing gratitude is an evidence-based intervention for wellness. And also, and also I, I just genuinely feel like I can't even hold it in how grateful I feel. Like, so I had to write a song. It is. It is an evidence-based intervention yeah. for helping. Yeah. And uh, in, the, in the song, I tell the story about how we got an email when we were driving in the car. And I started singing, Brene Brown, Brene Brown. I literally... Like the song is based on the singing that I did in the car when we first got the email. Yeah, truly. Of the invitation changed our yeah. lives. Literally, you literally did that, which indicates the sort of like immediate excitement and thrill we had. <laughs> so we're sharing our gratitude on a large scale, which only amplifies the impact of it as an intervention, not just for you and for me. Also for Brene, should she ever happen to hear it. <laughs> and for everybody who gets to like partake and like, yeah, let's remember how important the good things are. Spreading some joy, doing the thing by doing the thing. Let's do it. Okay, here it is. The story begins in a choroid. You need to know Emily has to drive. Being a passenger gives her migraines, but I, I can read my emails even in the car. Up popped an email from our agent, Lindsay. She's the best, so I unlocked my phone, opened up the app, and read the subject line. The subject line. And I sang in the 
silly song about how being on Unlocking Us did great things for us professionally. But let's spend the bridge focusing on how truly lovely it was to spend time with Brene and talk about coping with the stress in our body so that we can be well enough to deal with a shit show that's causing our stress. Plus, let's face it, how many sisters get to tell a zillion people how smart and strong their sister is? And no, I'm not telling you which one of us wrote that part. Up popped an email from our agent, Lindsay. She's the best, so I unlocked my phone, opened up the app, and read the subject line. The New York Times. So I sang again, Brene Brown, Brene Brown, Brene Brown made us New York Times bestsellers. Brene Brown, Brene I did not think as many people would listen to the podcast as do. <laughs> that has sort of changed my relationship with the podcast a little bit. And it's something we'll have to consider uh, for whatever the next step is that people are going to listen to it. It's not just you and me talking to each other. Mm-hmm. I don't want to think about that. Okay. Don't think about that part. <laughs> I'll do the thinking about that okay. part because you have a job and COVID. Yeah. It's taking care of each other. <laughs> compassion. <Kindness and> compassion. <laughs> We are such bitches. How are we going to end this? We can't just be sarcastic. I know that people like appreciate our sarcasm. I think we can. I think people are I like think that's realistic and legit and and authentic. And I think that that's I think that's correct. So whatever happens on election day, whatever's going on in the world, when you listen to this, turn toward it. With kindness and compassion, turn toward your rage with kindness and compassion, turn toward your despair with kindness and compassion, turn toward your relief with kindness and compassion and allow yourself to grieve and pour out all the stress you've been carrying around all this time just because it's over doesn't mean just because you've dealt, suppose good things happen just because you dealt with the stressor doesn't mean you've dealt with the stress, expect your body to have things it needs to do to finish processing all this. This has been four years of bad. It's going to take at least two years to get rid of the stressors from the past four years, especially just this past one year. It's going to take it's going to take 2021 to get over 2020, at least. I was I was going to say maybe not that long for some people, but then I remembered that everybody was like, I really relate to Amelia. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Remember when we talked to Allegra and she was like, ah, everything's so hard. And I was like, girl, you just finished your doctorate. It's going to take you four more years to crawl out of that fucking hole. She was like, oh, right. So anyway, the point is that once you've dealt with the stress sore, you still need to deal with the stress itself. So like, be relieved. Yeah, absolutely. And then turn toward the feelings that are going to keep coming up for the next months and years that are a result of not having had enough time to process everything that 2020 threw at us. Yeah, there's there wasn't any way. Nope. One of the things that Peggy and I talked about before the recording went on was how much grief mm. all of us are holding on to because we've been denied the rituals and connection that allow us to grieve and heal. And there's been so much loss, so much literal loss of life, mm -hmm. family members missing that we didn't get to say goodbye to. Yeah. Like there's so much that we still are going to have feelings. So I guess to conclude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because you've dealt with the stressor doesn't mean you've dealt with the stress itself. Turn toward it. Kindness. Motherfucking compassion. <sighs> yeah. And this has been <laughs> the Feminist Survival Project 2020. As they say in Hamilton, <laughs> see you on the other side. And thanks for listening. Just to make it clear, podcast is not therapy. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.